Amen. And if you're standing, you may be seated. And if you're seated, remain seated. And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 2. And, you know, as I'm sitting here worshiping and just listening to our worship team, whom I love because they love Jesus, I realize how excited I am for you all to get back and to be a part of the worship service. And so I'm going to tell you when that's going to be at the end of the service. And so you're just going to have to hang out and be a part of that. So we want to look at God's word first. That's the most important thing. I do want to make one announcement, and it's, it's an important announcement. And you know, We've been so blessed by so many great servants with our, within our church. And um, as many of you know, uh, Kristen Friend launched our children's ministry, and Tiffany Snow was helping her with that. And then, and then they kind of switched places, and Tiffany Snow has been leading, but now uh, Tiffany has had to, is having to step down as our director of children's ministry. And, and really the reason is, uh, two reasons. One is they have a, just an incredible gift from God, Mason, who has some special needs, and because of the coronavirus, they just can't be around people, and, and we totally understand that. And also, they actually have bought a house now down in the East Valley, so they're going to kind of help us with the transition. So we wanted you to know that. We're so thankful for Tiffany, for Adam, and just their whole family. But also, if you know somebody that wants to part-time be able to help us with children's ministry, we would love to talk to them as we are praying for who will be moving with us forward. And so we're just, again, thankful for, for Tiffany and Adam. Well, John chapter 2. Growing up, when I would explain to my dad something that I was going to do, he would look at me and he would say, Bill, I'm from Missouri. Show me. To which I would say, Dad, you're not from Missouri. You're from Indiana. And he would say, you're right. I still want you to show me. What he did was he took the moniker from Missouri, the show me state, and he would always say, show me. And what he was trying to do is he was saying, listen, I'm skeptical about your words. Actions speak louder than words. And he wasn't just saying that about me. That's kind of who he was. But he says, show me, and then I'll, I'll believe it. And so that was something that we grew up with. Can you back up your words with your actions? Well, when we come to John chapter 2, we've heard testimonies about the deity of Christ about that he is God, he is creator, he is the son of man, he is light and life, he is the king of kings, that he is, he is the son of God, that he is, he is the king of Israel. He's the promised Messiah. And now in John chapter 2, we see the first of the signs that he performs to show us that he is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. This is the first sign that manifests his glory. And we're going to see as we study the book of John, there's seven signs, there's seven miracles that declare his glory. There's also seven I am statements where he, he, he declares the fact that he is God. This is his first public show me moment. So why does John record this in John chapter 2? Well, it all goes back to the passage we've been talking about. John chapter 20, verse 31. Let me put it on the screen and, and let's look at it together. He says, but these are written, these, all of this in this, this book, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, these are written 
there's a purpose that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. And this first miracle is his first show-me moment. And the fact, for those that were in the presence of Jesus that day, in John chapter 2, they experienced his authority. They experienced his transforming power. And they experienced his glory. And let me say this. For those of us that walk with Jesus day by day, we will experience his authority. We will experience his transforming power. And we will experience his glory. Let me, let me just tell you, let me just put this in a sentence form. I'll put it up on the screen. This is the big idea of the message. It says, uh, I wrote this. When you walk in the presence of Jesus, you will experience his authority. You will experience his transforming power. And you will experience his glory. What I love about this passage is we see both Jesus' humanity in his concern for what's going on at this wedding, but we also see his deity. We see his, 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 his sovereign power. Our great and mighty king, our Lord of lords, he acts, he gets in the midst of an everyday situation, and he moves he cares about the little things. He cares about things in life. He cares about your situation. So I want to give you three encouragements as we look at this. And what we see him really doing is turning a disappointment into a joy. So when you walk in the presence of Jesus, first of all, embrace his authority. When you walk in the presence of Jesus, embrace his authority. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. Let's read the first five verses. In fact, if you don't have your Bibles open, I would encourage you to open your Bibles because we want you to follow along and see what God has to say. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So it's the third day. It's the third day after Philip had invited Nathaniel to come and see the Messiah. And we find that Jesus is invited to a wedding along with his disciples in Cana of Galilee. Cana is very close to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And so we don't know exactly who's wedding it was, but it was probably either some close friends of the family, or it could have been a relative. His mother was there. We see from verse 12 that his brothers and sisters may very well have been there also. And, and notice what it says in verse 2. It says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding. I think that's such an important thing to understand. I've, I've performed a lot, I've officiated a lot of weddings over my 19 years in ministry. And always the most important guest you can invite into a wedding is Jesus. In fact, not only invite into a wedding, but invite into your marriage is Jesus. In fact, one of the things that we get to do in Arizona is we have what's called covenant marriages. There's only three states in the, in the country that allow it. In a covenant marriage, first, you must have premarital counseling. Secondly, when you, when you vow, you're actually not vowing, you're covenanting with each other. And third, if you 
for any reason decide that this is not working out and you want a divorce, you actually have to go through a year of counseling. They, they don't make it easy for you to divorce. It's called a covenant, it's called a covenant uh, marriage. But the fact is, it is a great bumper for a marriage, but there's an even greater bumper for your marriage. And that's when Jesus is invited into your marriage. But there's a great bumper for life. And that's when Jesus is at the center of everything in your life, whether it be your business, whether it be your family, whatever it is. The fact is, Jesus was invited to the wedding. I'm going to ask you, have you invited Jesus into your marriage? Is Jesus at the center of your marriage? I was just thinking as I'm preaching right now, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the value of a friend. A threefold cord is not easily broken. You see, you see a husband and a wife and Jesus, this, 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 this rope that is put together with three strands. And that's what makes a marriage so strong when it's not just you know, like me and Pam, but it's me and Pam and Jesus. And he's at the center of everything. In fact, I would say this. So many issues in your life could be solved if you just invite Jesus into it. In fact, I was talking with our guys uh, from our small group the other night, Tuesday night, and we've been going through the uh, book of Daniel, and our breakout question, our, our uh, accountability question was, do you find yourself more independent or do you find yourself more dependent and when do you find yourself more independent when do you find yourself more dependent and, and, and pretty much it was it was unanimous that all of us admitted that when we get going in work we're very independent it's we like we wake up in the morning we're pretty good about spending time in the word and and praying and asking jesus to lead our day but once things get going and and we got the calls and we've got the meetings and all of a sudden all these things are going on we find ourselves, okay, I got this, Jesus. I know what I'm doing. And that usually doesn't go well. I, I, there's been times I've been preaching a mess. I've been writing a message, and I'm like, I've not even stopped and asked the Lord to show me the way. And so what we kind of concluded is that at 10 in the morning, we're going to have a 10 o'clock reset for 10 minutes. Where whatever we're doing, unless we're in a meeting, we'll, we'll stop, and we'll just pull out a psalm, and we'll just stop and reset and say, Lord, I need you to direct the rest of my day. I'm telling you, it's been really impactful. Invite Jesus into your life. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now you could kind of read over that quickly and miss the implications. This was a huge situation all of a sudden. In fact, in fact, weddings were, were probably the high point of a person's life in, in first century, uh, in, in first century uh, Israel, where the groom's family would plan. They would be the ones responsible for paying for it. And they would, they would calculate how many people would be there, and they would have to order wine accordingly. And if the wine ran out, it'd be disastrous. It would bring shame upon the family. In fact... I read that in some instances, the bride's family could sue the groom's family because of that. Now, some of you have had a rough first year of marriage. And can you imagine the wife's family suing the groom's family? I mean, and you start your marriage that way? I mean, this is a big deal. Wine is a symbol of joy in Scripture. And this 
lack of wine would have created great disappointment. Listen to what Psalm 104, uh, 15 says. It says this, And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine has, has, has joyous values. Now, I'm not talking about abuse of wine. But, but wine is something that was created by God. It was a good thing. The problem is the fall of man, sin, has made it a bad thing in certain instances. And so this would have been a really great disappointment. But notice what, what Jesus' mom does. He just comes to her. She just comes to him and lays it at his feet. Mary doesn't command him to do anything. She doesn't demand him to do anything. She just brought the problem to him and trusted him for the outcome. I can't tell you the times I've heard people just demanding or commanding God to do something. It's like, man, you just like stand away from the car. Just lay it at his feet. He is God. He is sovereign. He knows what we need. But what I love also is, notice where she goes first. She goes to Jesus first. She, she takes the issue to him. How often do we take the issue everywhere else but to him? Like, she could have really stirred the pot, right? She could have gone to the groom's family, the bride's family. She could have gone to all the guests and said, we're out of wine. And then all of a sudden, you just have all of this turmoil. And how many of us, would eliminate so many problems if we just went to Jesus first. I think that's so instructive. Before I respond, I'm going to take it to Jesus. Before I act, I'm going to take it to Jesus. And that's what you see Mary doing. Is Jesus the first place you go with a problem? Or is he the last resort? And, and note this, he cares about the little things. You know, so often people will say, well, I just, you know, I don't need to bother him with this. He has more important things. Listen, he cares. He cares about the little things. I mean, God knows the number of hairs on your head. And for some of us, that's easier than others. But the fact is, he cares. But look at Jesus' response in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's biblical experts that will disagree, that do disagree, about whether this was, um, this was affectionate and respectful or whether it wasn't. And I look at, I look at uh, John chapter 19, verse 26, where Jesus is on the cross, and he says, Woman, behold your son. And certainly that would have been a moment of affection. But what we do know about this statement is it was not sinful. Because Jesus was without sin. So we know that for sure. But the fact is, what he was doing, what, what Jesus was doing is he was putting the will of the Father over the will of his family. We see him do that at different times in Scripture. And, and certainly that is the most important thing for us to do, is that we always put Jesus first. And, but we also see that Jesus rejects Mary's statement here by saying this he says my hour has not yet come now what does he mean by his hour well his hour of crucifixion 
his hour of his death. He came for a purpose. He came to die. He came to redeem sinners from their sin. And so he says, my hour has not yet come. In fact, seven different times in the book of John, we see him refer to his hour. And, and then you get to chapter 13 when he's, when he's getting ready to have the, the final supper. And he says, my hour has come. In John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer, he says to the father, my hour is at hand. But here he says, my hour has not yet come. It was not time to manifest his glory in the way that would cause him to have to go to the cross at this point. He knew God's timetable, and it was not the time for the public display of miracles. Yet, in his sovereignty, he chose to act. But there's something we learn about Mary in this, and we, something we learn that she's not. Even though Mary is blessed to be the mother of Jesus, she's not to be venerated. She is the mother of Jesus, but she is not a deity. She is not co-redemptrix with Jesus. She is not one to be prayed to. Nowhere in the Bible do you see anybody ever praying to, to Mary. And, and also we see in this, this passage that, that she's not a perpetual virgin. In fact, if you look at verse 12, notice what it says. After this, they went, he went down to Capernaum with his mother Mary and his brothers. It could be brothers and sisters and his disciples. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin. But the fact is, she was the mother of Jesus. And she was blessed. But notice how she responds to his statement. Verse 5. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Once again, that's one of those statements that you can just read over really quickly. But I mean, there's so much there. Do whatever he tells you. What she's saying is embrace his authority. He is sovereign. Do whatever he tells you. A Christ follower is someone that hears the words of Jesus and does them. In fact, Jesus even tells us that is a wise man. John chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. In fact, I want to put it up on the screen because it's, it's such a great passage. Let me put it up there for you. John chapter, John chapter 7, verse 24. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. It heard the words. They heard the words and did them. But he goes on. He says, he says everyone then who hears these words of mine. Let's go ahead and go to the next uh, uh, slide. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Two men, same storm, same location, different foundation. The foundation of the one was somebody that heard God's word and did it. The other was the one that heard God's word and chose not to do it. His house fell. What you see here is Mary saying, be obedient to the word of God. Do whatever he tells you. 
The fact is, God is sovereign and he uses our obedience to do great things. In the midst of this statement by Mary to do whatever he says, they are getting ready to see God do an amazing thing. Embrace his authority. Do what he tells you to do and he will do the rest. Now you're thinking, like, like what? Well, how about this? Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Unconditionally loving your wives. Or wives respecting your husbands. Or, or children honoring your parents. Or, or fathers not exasperating your children. Or even just some of the one another commands to serve one another. To honor one another. To encourage one another. To forgive one another. To love one another. See, Mary says, do whatever he tells you. Embrace his authority. So when you walk in the presence of Jesus, embrace his authority. That's the first thing we see. Now, the others are going to go a little bit quicker. Secondly, be transformed by his power. Be transformed by his power. Let's look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now, be, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone, I mean, you can just imagine, he puts his arm around him and just says, like, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, when the guests would have been arriving at this wedding, there would have been these, these pots, these large 20 to 30 gallon pots at the entrance of, the, of, of wherever the wedding was. And it was for ritualistically washing the hands. These jars had religious significance, but they just represented the externals of religion. Not any type of internal transformation. And Jesus used what he had to perform this miracle. In fact, we see that in the, in the miracle of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. He says, what do we have? Here, it was like, what do we have? We have six pots. In the feeding of the 5,000, they had five loaves of bread and they had, they had two, two fish. And he asked those servants to participate. Look at verse 7. It says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And, you know, you wonder if they're in that moment thinking, why are we doing this? Isn't the problem have to do with wine? But then he says them to them in verse 8. Now draw out, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I'm thinking if I'm one of those servants, I'm thinking, okay, you tell us to pour water in. And now you tell it to us to, to pour it out and then to take it to the master of the feast. What do you think? This, this, this sommelier is, is, is going to be stupid? Do you think he's not going to know that this is water? But the fact is, when Jesus tells us to do something, even though it may not make sense in the moment, or may, even though it might go against the culture, or even though it, it might be something that, that um, can cause all kinds of consequences, we're called to do it. Isaiah 55 tells us, 
His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts greater than our thoughts. This is where we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. So they do what Jesus commanded, and somewhere between the pouring in and the pouring out, Jesus turned the water to wine. He takes the pots of this dead orthodoxy and he turns it into this this exhibition of transformative power. No crush, no fermentation, just obedience. And God performs an incredible miracle. And it's a reminder that we are transformed by the power of God when we just obey his call to repent of our sins and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, to believe in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no crush, no no fermentation, just obedience to what we're called to do. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus is in the transforming business. He transforms our old life into a new life when we obey what He calls us to do. Jesus is in the transformation business. So I want to just give you some examples of His transforming power. Let me me put the first one up. He can take your broken heart and bring healing to it. Now, I can get really personal on this one. Pam and I have had, we've had personal tragedy. We've had ministerial tragedy. We've had, we've had business tragedy. We've, we've, we've had our hearts broken. But God has healed our hearts when you just lay it at his feet. Just bring it to him. Lay it at his feet. Come to him. But not only can he take a broken heart and bring healing to it, he can take your anxious mind and bring peace to it. He gives us a peace that passes all understanding. He is a a God who transforms. Third, he can take a heavy burden and he can make it light. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 11, I I repeat this verse all the time, come to me all you who are heavy laden and, and burdened and I will give you rest for your souls for my burden is light. Take it to him. Fourth, he can take your physical sickness and bring healing. He is a God that heals. Finally, he can take your lost soul and save it. This is the transforming power of Jesus. This is the one we worship. This is the one we lay our issues at the feet of. He is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. Take your issues to Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, he says, follow me. He says, abide in me. He says, come to me. He says, believe in me. He says, trust in me. And when you do, you will be transformed by his power. I want you to look at the impact of their obedience, the impact it had. Look at verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And I'm telling you, at this point, their minds are blown. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then people have drunk freely, 
then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And I'm thinking, what kind of party is that? We're going to give you the good stuff. And once we get you having a little bit too much wine, we're going to bring out the bad stuff. But I guess that was kind of the culture of the day. But notice this. There was great joy as a result of the transformation. I think about when those people receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, there, there is great joy. You know, 22 years ago when Pam and I received Christ, there was unbelievable joy in our lives. But we also see this. Jesus saves the best for the last. He saves the best for the last. In fact, our new life is, in Christ is so much better than our old life apart from Christ. In fact, our our eternal life in heaven with Jesus Christ will be so much better than our finite life here on earth. Jesus saves the best for last, for the best for last. And the fact is, your life can be better today than it was yesterday. And your life tomorrow can be better than it was today if you put your trust and faith in the transforming power of Jesus. If you lay your issues at his feet and live out the life that he calls you to live. When you walk in the presence of Jesus, embrace his authority, be transformed by his power, and then you will finally experience his glory. You'll experience his glory. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When you look at verse 11, this is the key to the whole passage. This is the purpose this passage is even in there. John identifies this event as a sign. It is one of Jesus' miracles. It is the first of signs. We have been told of his deity, but here his words have been backed up by his actions. This is his show-me moment. This sign points to the fact that a Christian's salvation involves a transformation in our lives. It is really a bridge from the Old Testament of dead orthodoxy to the transformative power of the New Testament that Jesus provides for us. This wine represents his blood that would be shed for us to, to cover our sins. It is a whole new world that Jesus is now opening up for us. Jesus turns us into new creations just as he turned the water into wine. This was a sign that manifested his glory. Showed his deity. Showed his divine power. And his disciples believed in him. Over and over and over again, you see the word believe in the book of John. These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It displayed the glory of his ministry, the fact that Jesus is willing to get into the details of our lives, that he cares. This, this newlywed couple, they averted disaster because Jesus was at the middle of their wedding we can avoid disaster in our lives when we put Jesus in the middle of our lives. This is not just a sign, but it's a miracle that displays the glorious future we have with Christ. It points us to the glorious wedding yet to come. 
when the church will enter into a marital union with Christ, with the Lord forever, when the bridegroom lovingly comes for her bride and the bride willingly receives her bridegroom. That is the picture of a marriage, but that is the picture of what a Christian's end of times is. When we spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, it, it points to a time where we will dwell with our great and mighty King forever. And there will be a great feast. In fact, listen to what Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 says. On this mountain, the Lord, will, Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. John, in Revelation chapter 19, he points us to a future feast. He says this in Revelation Chapter 19, he says, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Let me ask you, as our worship team comes up, will you be there? Will you be at the marriage supper of the Lamb where there will be great aged wine, great food? Will you be there because you've been transformed by the power of Jesus in your life? The fact is, if you turn from your sins, that's called repentance, and embrace the transforming power of Jesus today, you will be. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus. Jesus manifested his glory. And for those that were walking with Jesus that day, and for those of us that walk with Jesus each and every day, we experience his authority. We experience his transforming power, and we experience his glory. And Jesus just says, come. For some of you, today, it may be time to come, to experience the glory, the manifest glory of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible passage and just the reminder that you are a, a good God, a glorious God, an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. And Lord, you take old religion, old ritualistic religion, and you give it life. You give us life, life everlasting. Father, I pray if there's anyone listening to this right now that has never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, today they would turn from their sin and self they would turn to you. I pray for those maybe that have been living independent lives apart from you, that today they would invite you into the everyday aspect of their lives. They would be dependent upon you. They would be obedient to you. They would see your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray.